You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, and I'm here with Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Hello, gentlemen. It's a pleasure. Hey, guys. <laughs> hey, Evan. Um, Aaron, who did you interview this week? Uh, I interviewed Natasha Vargas Cooper, who um, I have been an unabashed fan of her writing for some time. Um, she's someone who's really come up while we've been doing long form i think the first thing i thought saw from her was uh, the all and now she's writing all over the place i'm really excited to hear this interview i i've not listened to it yet but i did see aaron directly after it was recorded and you had like uh, no color in your face it you were was pretty pale. it was the long far and away the longest uh recording session we've ever done for this podcast i think that record will stand uh i think I, I got the sense that you guys got real too it was two and a half hours of um unfiltered audio which uh, is in a condensed format. Um, I won't, I won't, I won't give anything away other than that, but this is a good one. Uh, check it out and also check out our sponsor, tinyletter.com. Tiny letter is a simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter from the good people at MailChimp. We thank them for their support. Wait, I have something else. Yes. Oh, you have something new. Wait, who is There's that a new guy? Atavis story this week. Just out. It's the legends of last place by Abe Streep. It's about the worst baseball team in all of professional baseball and all independent leagues. The Santa Fe Fuego. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, here's uh, me and Natasha. Hello, Natasha Vargas Cooper. Hi. Um, we are in sunny Los Feliz. Mm. Am, I, am I saying that right? Have yes, I been making Los a Feliz. Los Feliz. Uh, how is it going, Natasha? Oh, my God. Great. Yes. I now, mean, you uh, told me you're coming from a courthouse. I am. I'm writing about a murder trial involving some Marines who kind of misbehaved and killed another Marine uh, and his wife. How so, long have you been have, on this story? About two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. And how long ago did these murders take place? 2008. 2008. So you've you've written from um, from the courthouse before. Yes. What what was your first trial? What was the first trial that you that you uh, spent spent in the house? My first trial was the uh, murder trial for Nick Markowitz, where they captured Jesse James Hollywood, 
Um, and that was up in Santa Barbara. And the reason why I started covering that was because I grew up with Nick and he was a very close friend of mine. And the, the murder kind of ripped apart our whole, uh, that happened when we were 15 going on 16. So it was a really kind of formative experience and um, touched everyone's, in my close circle's life. Some people were kind of never the same. Um, it caused a lot of trauma. And so he was on the run for 10 years. And so when he first got captured by the FBI. In Brazil, um, right? In Brazil. Yeah. Um, I was um, his, Nick Markowitz's parents and my best friend Ryan, who was also best friends with Nick, um, went to, the, to Santa Barbara to watch him being brought into jail. And M- Ryan asked me to come with him. So I was there for that. And it's just, you know, it's, it's as high stakes as you can get. I was curious from my own point, from just, I just wanted to know all about the trial, but also just as I wanted to write about serious stuff. And I was like, well, this is as serious as it gets. And I know all of the details and I live the details. So I'm just going to write about it. And I just, I asked Corey and Alex at the all, I was like, can I just write about this for you? And they said, yeah. And so I did that. I went to Santa Barbara every day for several months just wrote for free (laughs) so at that point i mean i wouldn't even know i don't think how to get into uh, a courthouse you literally walk in you just walk in right just walk in the only trials that are difficult to get to are things that concern sexual assault and minors otherwise Can can you get into those at all those are harder those are those you have to go through a much more like you have to talk with the judge and he can kind of pick and choose who can be there generally it's not open to the public um They'll have press conference afterwards, but it's actually, I mean, this is one of the wonderful things about living in a democratic society is you can just walk in and just sit there. But we can't ban guns. But we can't ban guns. I mean, that's the trade-off, you know, (laughs) you can have a gun. But okay. So when you say that, let's, 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 let's take the the Jesse James Hollywood. This trial lasted over a period of months. Yeah. Are you in court every day? I try to go to court every day. Um, some days, uh, their court is in session from Monday to Thursday, generally. Um, and I try to go every day. Sometimes I would pick up other assignments or whatever and wouldn't be there. But, um, you know, to me, it's, it's all, it's all color and it's all like you get almost every, there, while there's not like necessarily grand drama to every testimony there is just like one more element of the story that you're like oh jesus oh okay and then also just to see how the defense can take it's fascinating to see how the same set of facts can be uh pushed and pulled in a way by two different sides and also when it comes to murder trials it's like um there is not a more high stake situation right like and and it is an incredibly weirdly banal and civilized proceeding like you in a very in a courtroom about the size of this living room you had people whose son was murdered and the people whose son murdered this other person's son sitting two feet away from each other and not killing each other which are you allowed to audio record uh, the thing okay and you but you can get the transcript from court transcripts but that's very expensive really oh yeah that's not a matter of public record no uh uh you they have to photocopy it and they have to do it through a court reporter, and the court reporter is already underpaid and overworked, and so it's like more work for them. Really? So some lawyers will be great and will say, if you want to come to my office and read the transcripts, you can. Yeah. So that's good. I mean, um, you know, and also when I went to the Jesse James Hollywood trial, I didn't identify as press. I just went as 
a citizen and didn't and didn't know and did not try to come at it from a journalistic perspective because there was it was I was too close to the case. I thought yeah. from the beginning that Jesse James Hollywood should be put in jail uh, for life, not death penalty, but because I'm opposed. But, you know, like uh, I was completely emotionally tied to the case um, and was in the tank, as they say. So I didn't even come thinking. I mean, I took notes. I did all the things. But like I never put on the air of like I'm a journalist doing this in a serious way. I just quit my job uh, working for a union and had just, you know, was like, oh, I'm going to try this. And it was like, uh, this is something that compels me. So I'm just going to do it. And did you when you quit that job, were you thinking I'm going to keep doing this I'm going to come up with new stories I mean yeah I mean when I I managed based on the cyclical work of campaigning there was several months uh, towards the end of my job where I just wasn't really doing much and so I was like blogging all the time and like um Alex Balk and Corey Asika were working at Radar and I was like here's a story here's this here's that and I was like and so actually like I had built this whole kind of freelance career while I was still working and so I saved up ten thousand dollars from my job and said okay I'm just gonna I'm just going to write until the money runs out how long did that get you well, I spent six weeks in New York and was like, this is a fucking shit show. I'm not going to be here any longer because I don't want to live like a peasant in poverty. So I left after six weeks. I made I made great friends and contacts and the people that I met there are still very helpful to me But um, and people I care a lot about. But it was just like, this is not the place for me to thrive. I cannot be worried about. I cannot walk in the snow to get fucking groceries at the Brooklyn Co-op. And like, be a happy person. And I can't do shifts at the broken co-op to yeah. save my life well, because they banned me. <laughs> what would you do? <laughs> I, I didn't show up too much. What a horrible! You are you are what's ruining the collective, the collective spirit of Brooklyn. It's really true, actually. It, it was a, it was a wake up call to me when I realized that I was not fit to be part of a um, cooperative society. Well, I just wouldn't leave the house for four days because it was cold, and like, I'm not into like, um, I like my car, and I like. I'm not into like public spaces. I live in Los Angeles. Like I think that's great for other people and like really democratic and wonderful, but like, oh, too much promiscuous mingling of different people around me. So I just like wouldn't leave the house. And then when I would, I'd go out with like other writers and editors and would drink a lot. And then I'd be like, oh, I'm getting drunk around the people give me work. This is terrifying. So I went home and moved in with my parents. Let, that, let's come back to that yes, as, a, as, a, as a theme. So <laughs> that story came out, and I assume after that story was sort of the first time you were pitching people. Oh, God, extensively. no. No? Okay. Not really. I mean, I did not really start pitching people until maybe a year and a half ago. I So I got a dog on my way home. I drove cross-country from Brooklyn to Los Angeles and was definitely like, I don't know, like eat, pray, loving or whatever. I haven't read the book, but I imagine I was just like, I was just sad and alone. <laughs> eat, eat, pray, loving through the Midwest. Through the Midwest and through the South, through Natchez, Mississippi and through Jackson. And so I was driving and I think after like four days in Louisiana, I was just like, oh, I and I just like left a boyfriend of five years who I thought I was going to marry and I quit my job and I knew I was moving back in with my parents and in Louisiana I was like oh I need a small dependent creature that's going to love me unconditionally and I walked into a pet store and I was like uh that one and I took the dog home and uh it the dog gave me all my routine it's the reason why I got up in the morning it's the reason why I bathed and the reason and then um one night I went out and I came home and it was gone and I slipped into like a deep dark depression 
And then I was like, uh, I'm just going to medicate by watching Mad Men. And so I started watching Mad Men and not sleeping and just compulsively blogging. And then about three weeks later, I got a call from HarperCollins and like, do you want to write a book? And I had just started my career as a writer about two months prior. So I was like, sure. So I had 30 days to write a book. 30 days. 30 days. Um, I pushed that shit to 45 days, though. I was, okay, I think a lot of people might be interested. How do you write a book in 30 to 45 days? Um, you don't. Uh, I would wake up at 6 p.m. I hired two researchers to sit in front of me, and I'd be like, look this up, look at this. Uh, come with me to the UCLA archives in like the couple days that I would work in the mornings, or in the mornings at 2 p.m. So I'd wake up at 6 p.m., I would eat, and then at Around 8, I would go to a lobby of a hotel that had Wi-Fi with my two researchers who I gave most a lot of my advance to and uh, work from 8 p.m. to, to 7 a.m. Hmm. with no interruption. I would send um, uh, bitchy emails at 1 a.m. to people that I was upset with um, that helped take some of the edge off. So like boyfriends that, that had wronged me. That was part. So in the middle of a 30 to 45 day book session, you were also sending angry emails. Yeah, because that was like part of the whole catharsis, right? It was like, I'm doing this thing now and like, fuck you for never calling me back. Like, I think I wrote one boyfriend, one, not even a boyfriend, a guy who was like, oh, after we slept together, I feel like we should really get to know each other as friends and like never called me. And that was the dude who I had like um, given my first um uh, I don't know how else to put this Be- blowjob to in uh, at summer camp and we had reconnected and I was like oh my god it's my summer camp love it's gonna work and then he just like never got in touch again and blew me off so I think like at 1am one night I remember like doing my manuscript and just being like hang on a second and just writing him I was like you're a real cunt and that was it and it just made me feel great um, I was just like <laughs> closing doors slamming doors this is my new life <laughs> so then um so then also like spending weekends locked in, in a hotel in Palm Springs, a lot of hotels, because I live with my parents. I was also on probation. The, do you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah, sure. Why, were, why are you on probation? You've, you've seen the courthouse from uh, every angle. I've been in jail, brother. I was on my way to a booty call at two in the morning. I, he kept pushing it back and I kept getting kind of more upset and I was out with friends. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to have another glass of Pinot Gris and um, I knocked it back. And then finally at like 2.30 when I was on my way to- This is kind of a hazard of living in Los Angeles, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. I have six friends who have DUIs. It's, uh, but I will say that out of those six, I think four of us, I mean, I got sober after that. I don't drink anymore. Um, so I, uh, I was speeding down the 10. And I was like, oh, Lady Gaga, yeah, Lady Gaga came on. And then the cops were behind me. And then within, like, uh, they were like, okay, we're going to breathalyze you. I was like, um, all right. I blew. And then within, I think, less than a second, I was in handcuffs. And I will say that there was an instant urge to run. Did I was like, like, I'll a- just run. I'll just run. And I-, I don't know where I'm going. Did the breathalyzer make, like, a, like a, like a fl- no, you beeping have no, noise? No, or- you have no idea. They just go, okay, breathe into this. And I'm like, Whoo. and they're like, all right. And then, like, just take your hand. Whoa. And you're just like, wait, oh, I can explain. Uh, and I wasn't even that drunk, but it was enough. I'm a short girl and two glasses will put you over. So then I got um, put into Van Nuys. This was the weekend I signed my book deal. And so I felt kind of invincible. Yeah. And so I, um, I got booked into Van Nuys with a bunch of, they had just done a prostitution sting. Uh, and there was about 19 uh, 18 year old black hookers, one named passion, one named Keisha. So like, 
So I was booked in. And at first I thought, well, like, oh, this is really anthropological and interesting and whatever. Uh, and then it just all really kind of started to sink in because I was like, I need to pee. They're like, there's a toilet right there. And it was like in front of 26 other people. And I was like, oh, so that was a wake up call. It helped that I was on probation. So I couldn't drive for the first 60 days. And yeah. that was when my book was due. So I'd have my researcher pick me up and I would go to AA meetings because I had to. Uh, and I wanted to. They were good. And then I um and I wrote my book, and um, I finished it two weeks late. That was it. You got a lot of energy. Duh. How did you channel all of that energy into your writing? Is actually quite composed, oh, and thank you. and uh, you often pick the pick stories that I feel like are kind of like a. I guess I'd describe as kind of a long grind. Yes. Um. I. I'd, I wouldn't identify your work with like, oh, that's an easy one. I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. Like, when I think of something like court reporting, actually, you're generally reporting on stuff that you don't know the outcome of right. going in, which could like which make, make or break the story. Which makes it people to accept your pitch. What, and let's get to that. But yes. what what sort of, what attracts you to those as stories and how did you, how did you learn how to structure mm -hmm. a reporting and writing experience based on, on that kind of stuff? Um, well, I like things that are high stakes. I don't like writing, even though I have a book, I don't like writing about television. I don't like writing about pop culture. I just, it's like, it's, it's, it's just about showing off how clever you are. And I definitely consume it. I mean, the biggest influence on me as a writer is probably Pauline Kael, right? But, um, but also George Orwell. So it's like, so I, I naturally have always gravitated towards like, low lives and hustlers and addicts and it's just like uh, kind of marginal existences so I like seek those stories out and and so it just it, it, and those stories by their nature are long right because these like crimes and transgressions and these kind of high stakes situations unless you're maybe in war don't just pop up right it's funny when we've um, the the database of long form is sorted by um, tags and categories, mm -hmm. and people always ask sort of what's the most popular, or whatever, and people have these perceptions. Oh, what is crime that? is yes! way way like crime is like half the stories. Really, that's great to hear. That's really great to hear. And I don't I don't think that's a taste issue. I actually think that's what crime is. What sort of unifies our oh, interest? Yeah, and you really you you're hard. You'd be hard fought to find someone who's really not interested in crime. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's everything, right? It's like you have the stakes, you have the characters, you have the wish fulfillment of yeah. you, you know, wanting to do this. But also like, um, like it's it really is sometimes, you know, oh fuck, what's the what's the phrase there? There, by the grace of God, go I. Whereas, like, there's certain things where you're like, oh, like, if I had one fucked up stepdad, right? Or if I had one fucked up uncle, I would be where some of these people are, right? Um, and so it's like, you know, I'm, a, I'm also attracted to stories about social justice, but there's just people who can write better about it, you know? And, um, and my real, you know, to me, when I was in, active in social justice, it was like the writers didn't mean shit. It was people who were going door to door, knocking, organizing, building structures. So it's like, to me, I know that writing about social justice, you know, and uh, that is to say, like, 
you know, for example, when the Pulitzers came out, my favorite stories that came out of that were the daycare stuff from Minnesota, yeah. right? Like, I get, like, that that moves policy and moves legislation. But, you know, it's like, I'm not really, like, out seeking justice, and that doesn't motivate my work. What motivates my work and what motivates going on these longer dives, these long stories, is, like, I'm really fascinated by um, pathologies and when they kind of mix with the normal world because those i don't know it's just transgression is so compelling and just and when it all gets caught up with each other and it usually has a bigger place and a bigger time because if there's a certain drug involved or a certain crime involved or certain it's like it's just a great what you have are these small slices that tell a much bigger story so I think the most recent um, sort of crime story, and yeah. I'm not sure I'd quite classify it as a crime story that you've done, is you did um, a story about the 10-year-old who killed his neo-Nazi father. Yes. Uh, and you did that for BuzzFeed. Yeah. Yes. So in taking on something like that that was already a pretty widely reported story, not in terms of a in-depth story, but in terms right. sort of a, a news hook, like there was coverage of it on CNN when it happened. When you decided to take that story on mm -hmm. what what are the sort of moves you make to get what you need for a story like that oh it's literally like uh the number one thing is is just having somebody is having someone with a, a with a budget who trusts you that's literally it like i without even going to court i was like here are the details of the case i'm a great writer give me this assignment <laughs> Right? Because, like, how, I mean, how is that not compelling, right? Like, sure. the facts of the case are so great, right? And fortunately, Steve Kandel at BuzzFeed is a risk taker and is like... Check out his long-form podcast. Hey, yeah. <laughs> is like, is, is willing to take some risk and doesn't... And BuzzFeed doesn't have the built-in neurosis of a lot of other magazines that are, like, you know, kind of, like, deciding by committee and all this other stuff. Like, mm -hmm. Steve just kind of wants good quality shit. So that's really it. Like it was it was literally like, here's this story. I've been reading about it. I think I can do a really good job on reporting it. Here's my plan. I'm going to go to Riverside. I'm going to talk to this. I'm going to talk to the DA. I'm going to talk, you know. Yeah. I will say that part of organizing is that like I am not nervous talking to people. Yeah. I'm fearless about it. I enjoy doing it. It's the favorite. Writing is the worst part of this gig for me. I hate fucking writing. I hate sitting down and writing. It's being with my worst self. It's me at my worst moods. It's me at my most. It's like David Rakoff wrote about it where it's like it's the opposite of cooking like nothing is edible and you're just all putting it together or like an infant crying it's just like and it's just it's just shit beaming back at me like I fucking hate these sentences but then when it's over it's like the best like I I have no greater joy than reading what I've published with huh. the exception of some editors that have fucked up my shit but like you know it's just <laughs> like oh this is fucking great and then being on a story interviewing the people watching it unfold get building relationships right because i have no fucking neutrality right like yeah. it's all relationship building um not in a kiss assy way but it's just like i respect what the da is doing i respect what the defense attorney is doing i talk to them like adults i have questions but i think they're doing incredible work it's yeah. moving work you know, so it's like that's the great part. Writing is the worst. Anyone who said people who are like, oh, I just love to write. I'm like, you're fucking deranged. This is the worst experience. I hate it. So in terms of dealing with the DA and with the attorneys yeah. and stuff like that, what 
how how do you sort of earn someone like that's trust? Oh, just pure personality. I mean, look, I had to explain, like, I'm from BuzzFeed. Here's the deal. We have been doing cat lists for a while, but we got venture capital money, and this is one of our first big stories. I've written for the New York Times, GQ, Spin, Atlantic, you know, and I got hired to do this. I'm also not a fucking schmuck, and, like, I portray a certain level of intelligence and charisma. So it's easy. You, you, it sounds hard. But. I, I mean, I'm sure it's hard for people who are like awkward music writers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's it, But like the, the hardest part is just being like a, a functional social human being. So. So in terms of taking that sort of raw material and mm-hmm. turning that into a story, um, when you first started doing that, did you did you have models for did you look at other writers? I mean, how, like, how do you put together that first story? Oh, my God. I have a. I mean, do you want to get processy? I'll, I'll go there. Oh Jesus! I t- I do everything. I take all notes by hand, right? Yes. And then I type those up. No, I mean, look. And then I type those up, and then I write, and then I and I gun through a draft, and I just take it, and I'm just like, oh, this is terrible. Get to the next paragraph. Oh, this is horrible. Get to the next paragraph. Yeah. And I set a uh, how many how many words I need to write a night. I only have four and a half hours of writing in me a day. I can't do more than that. I like that you know to the it's, half it's hour, my, not to the hour. No, it's exact. It's it's my limit. It's from yeah. eight to midnight to twelve thirty. So uh, I read. I do so much reading and over preparing. So when I so when I was doing the Jesse James Hollywood trial, um, I reread In Cold Blood. When I always read Norman Mailer. I, um, I've been reading, you know, it's, it's like I did canon. If you were to ask me, like, who are my favorite contemporary journalists? Who are your favorite contemporary journalists? I can journalists? maybe name two. I don't know. Like, who, uh, are, who are your, who are your favorite? Who are your favorite two? Uh, Caitlin Flanagan and, um, Ben Schwartz. <laughs> I mean, um, those are the people who like, no matter what they write, I will read. Yeah. Like, I think David Grant is great. I remember reading David Grant's Trial by Fire and I was like, okay, I want to do this. This is the type of work I want to do. Because mm-hmm. I was kind of like writing about TV. I was kind of writing like, I mean, I make most of my money from doing celebrity profiles. Right. Which is like the worst. So you have no respect for the celebrity profile. I do. I do when it's actually done. I mean, celebrity profiles don't have access. You're given 20 minutes in yeah. a room and it's like, go. And their publicist is right there. And it's this, I listened to Molly Young's thing. It's a completely inauthentic experience. Yeah. They're both lying. It was perfect. It's, exa- it's humiliating for both people in the room. And then on occasion, you actually get access and it's really fascinating. Yeah. Like Dr. Drew, who I did, or Out Magazine has given me these great access to people who are not hugely famous. Right. So, and they just, I can just hang around them for days. And it's like, wow, you're fucking fascinating actual human beings rather than the, kind of pop constructed persona that you're engaging with and that you're just making up. Like I've gotten assignments from magazines that have been like, um, uh, they've said like, this person is on our cover, right? They said, you know, write a story. And what you always hope for in these cases is that you can just do a Q and a, right? Less work for you. And you're like, okay, well this person is compelling enough that you put them on your cover. Here's, they actually like answered the question sincerely here is here is the Q and A, and I was told you writing about this person is more compelling than this person, which I realize is not like you're like oh what's the big insight, but like that like never occurred to me. It's like oh I thought, but I thought you're putting this person on 
your magazine cover because you found them interesting. I don't, but you do. But no, it's like, no, we actually have this whole other narrative about them um, that you didn't get in the interview, but we can reconstruct. And, you know, they're like the single it girl who's now making it or like the embattled director, even though that had nothing to do with the content of the of the interview but like that is what we've already designed this around so just go do that and I was like oh oh that's (laughs) how this works you know so you do that for money yes and is that the that's the primary that's your that's your paycheck yeah because those are quick those are just quick and dirty those are just like I don't know how many hand jobs a hooker gives out a night but I assume it's the bread and butter so it's like these are just these are hand jobs yeah I don't know do people I guess because they're cheap and easy and fast (sighs) Hand jays, Are there a lot of men paying for hand I jobs? I hope not. I don't know what men pay for. <laughs> I feel like I'd pay not to get a hand job. Oh, my God. Whoa. Whoa. Explosion. Yes. Um. Uh, hold on. I, sp- I, uh, I timed that well. Yes. hey Don't mess up these floors. We're back. Yes. We're moving past hand jobs. Yeah, I mean, we'll I... Agree, we'll yeah. agree to disagree about the value of a hand yes, job. Yes, but, but what I'm saying is that, like, those are quick and easy and pay... Uh, those are quick and easy and they pay well. Yeah. Whereas, like, you know, the amount of time I spend on a crime story reporting and thinking and expenses, I I lose, you know? You, do you, you literally lose money. Mostly. Wow. So this is literally a labor of love for you, then? Yeah. Even if you... Even if I publish three... Let's say I publish, it's closer to three features a year. Yeah. That's $15,000. That's it. Yeah. If that, I mean, I made between twenty five dollars and $30,000 last year. I might as well be a fucking school teacher, you know? Um, and even then I would get health care. <laughs> I don't have health care. Um, so it's like, I haven't, I haven't unlocked it yet. I haven't quite figured it out yet. You know, I was like, okay, I'm going to grow up and be, um, like when I started writing, I'm going to grow up and be Christopher Hitchens. And then Hitchens died, and I don't really know who's taking his place. And I don't know if those jobs exist anymore, you know. And I think it's all reshuffling, as we know. And like, it's definitely more democratic. And it, I've made a living out of writing in, in, in and for the internet, you yeah. know. And I've been lucky enough to get kind of lucky. Get, fuck this. These are like horrible conglomerates <laughs> who could absolutely afford to pay me more, yeah. and like don't, yeah. you know. And there's some people who have like who have a lot of talent and are also charmed and get these kind of big pieces and can kind of just say like I have this great story, publish me, you know, and they get them. Or like Ariel Levy is fantastic, you know, or David Grant, like these, you know. But there's like 14 of them. Yeah. Right. Like we, you and I could name all of the people who make kind of a prestigious living at being long form feature writers. You can find most of them on longform.org. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I think, I think that's accurate, but I mean, is it, is it getting better? Like, do you, do you, do you have optimism? There are a couple, I will, I will actually say this. There are about three editors out there who I hope, I hope they keep being editors because they pay me and they fight for me and they give me work. But literally my, my faith is in those three people. How did you develop? So one of those relationships with someone who was your teacher, how, how did you develop the relationships with the editors that you, that you do like working with? Like, I just pitch them. Yeah. I'm, I'm good. I mean, like I'm pretty good at pitching. I'm constantly having stories in my head. Here's what I will say is like, why I feel like I, um, belong 
doing this when I'm not writing as much as I hate writing all I'm doing is read like all I do all I I do is read (laughs) longform.org all day honestly it's all I do it's like oh I have an hour to kill I uh, what do I need to catch up on like I have the archive subscription to Harper's which is like changed my life you know it's like uh, all I do is kind of consume this and I've been able to be like this is what's good this I mean look it's also like I'm constantly stealing I'm like oh that's a great adjective oh that's a great structure you know like I take notes on all this stuff I mean you're like um i'll rip stuff out and yeah. paste it into a little notebook i have or like i evernote has changed my life so like so all of this to say is like um it is it, i will say for like uh uh i will spend about four and a half hours a day for 10 days at a time writing straight uh, and that's when I'm like in the worst, most depressed mood. And Where do you get, so when you said that you're like constantly reading, what I thought you were going to yeah. say is that you're constantly looking for story yes. ideas. So where, where are you getting the leads for these stories? Associated Press. Yeah, just I read the wire, I read the wires all the time. And uh-huh. it's like, I'm, and the local wires. So it's like, um, I, I really have to recommend the eight. Oh, I'm, now I feel like I'm giving away my secrets. But um, that's what this podcast is all about. Oh, mm. um, tell, tell us all your secrets. Yeah. Um, so I the Associated Press app is great, and it uh, it just structures the local stories in a great way. And so uh, because I have connections in Riverside, it's like I know almost every crime that goes that happens that goes to trial uh, because I also have. Uh, like a, a relationship with the DA. So I'm also sent like, here's a press release. Here's what we're doing this Are you week. you a narc? Yeah, duh. <laughs> um, uh, it's like, I also have like, um, I'm friendly with the LAPD. So it's like, I just, I know who to track. Yeah. And so I'm like, this is a story. And I know I can get access to it. So I'm interested, knowing that you're on the AP wire, which you yes. just gave up your secret. Oh. But probably it wasn't. But you know what? Can I just say? Yeah. I don't feel like I have that much competition at my level in the sense of like people, I like, uh, these are long, hard stories to report. But I do feel like increasingly, actually, particularly on with the sort of rise of the web where everyone's yes. like writing in the same space, right? There, there was a period of time where it's like, oh, two of the same story in two different magazines. Oh, well, whatever. No one right. cares. Right. Um, you see stories now, like I'm thinking of like that story of the the guy who let out his like exotic zoo, oh, you know? Great. And Chris like Heath. Chris, yeah, I think Chris Jones and Chris Heath both did it. So knowing that, I sort of wonder whether like your, um, like your, your best ideas, do you go, oh shit, someone else is on this probably no. too? I'm, I'm a, um, Sometimes, but it doesn't matter because I feel like here really comes ready for the swagger. Swag it. I'm a very elegant writer. Yeah. And I have a very particular voice and a very, I just, I'm going to write it first (laughs) because I work cheaper and I work for the web. Yeah. So for instance, GQ is going to run a story on Joseph Hall. They were at the trial. This is the the neo-Nazi story. Yes. That's going to come out in July. And you knew about that while you were writing mm-hmm. that someone else was. Yeah, and I was it. I was a little concerned about it, but you know, I I don't I I don't I don't, I play a different game. Well, I'm sort of interested because you have um, the stories you have done have sort of are sort of split between stories where you're completely outside the story, and then in the case yes. of that Atlantic story, you do appear in the yes. story. Um, and that story is about pornography. Well, so what what inspired you to write about pornography in the first part? Um, Ben Schwartz called me and was like. You love I, porn. He was like, I have the piece 
that's going to make your career. And I was like, give it to me. Because what had happened for a year is that I had just written under him at UCLA. And I got an A plus in both my classes and just took every assignment he gave really seriously because I was in it with, um, I was a history and public policy major, but I was in it with a bunch of literature or English majors who were just shitty and stupid and were like, Dickens and Victorian. I was an English major. Well, you guys are insufferable. But I will say that the best classes I took at UCLA were English classes. Um, But we were studying nonfiction. Yeah. So it was like, I was just like, I was super absorbed by it and was very into it. So I somewhat proven myself through doing so much work in these classes and like he had known that I was trying to like start and freelance. He's like, look, you're the perfect person to write this. Here's what I want to know. Why is it acceptable for um, women to do doggy style on the first night of having sex? And I was like, it's unacceptable. Who doesn't do doggy style? Who says that? Yeah. Well, people who grew up in a different time. So I was, he's like, get to the bottom of that. And so that started a year process where I got that call about a month before I got my book deal. So even like through doing the book, I was always thinking about it. I was always, I also like had my year of like sexual nihilism of like, just bring it. Let's see what we can do. And just like, you know, got to the heart of darkness. Was when, that part of the research? Yeah, kind of. I um, mean, not did, really, but it was just like, it was lived experience. It was like Lena Dunham 1.0. Did, when you were, when you were doing, when you were doing your research for that story, did you know that you would appear in the story no. that your own experiences were? No. I mean, look, uh, I mean, I gave like, I think I gave one very telling experience. Um, yeah. But it's very, but it like really stands out because yeah. it's in, in a piece of nonfiction. That's yeah. And about, it was, and it was great because like they were right before we gone through several drafts and uh, Ben brought it to the Atlantic and they were like half, it was one of the most polarizing pieces. Some of the copy editors were like, we're against this piece. So it was great. Right. And he was like, some of the people are asking if you were molested. And I was like, <laughs> no, silly. Um, but he's like, look, I'm just going to say this for you. Because Ben's known me for a long time, and he's friends with my dad. He's like, "Are you okay with this piece, with this detail? Um, if you had kids and they read it?" And I was like, "Oh come on!" I was like, "My kids are reading me in the Atlantic. Sounds fucking great." Yeah, like, Good luck with that. Right, and but it's also very calculated. It's also like, here's this one piece that strengthens my argument. Right, and it's just that's it, and it's just there. But um, but did you were you concerned that oh. Um, this is the piece that's going to get pulled out. People are going to talk oh, about God, that. Oh, God, no. The piece is so strong that it doesn't matter. Really? Yeah, I had no fear of it because I have very, I have huge confidence in my writing. So it's it what like, stuck, with, stuck with me about the piece. Though. Oh, like, good. I, that was a, well, that's the past I remembered, and I wonder. Um, but the reason why that, I feel, I hope, I think the reason why that sticks is because it just makes the point. Yeah. That I'm arguing in the piece, right? Mm-hmm. It's not an aside. It's not like a cheeky whatever. It's that it is a personal anecdote that sums up the entire thesis, right? right? Which is that um, men will always push further. Yeah. Um, uh, but also, like, I knew at some point that I had a natural authority in talking about this because I'm a woman and I've, I've a woman of the world and I went to jail, and I've slept with dudes, and like, you know, a lot of these fucking like blogger feminists who've been in fucking relationships for six years and are not out on the fucking sexual market, who are not dealing with the kind of existential dread of not having intimacy, because that's what the piece is also about, is sex 
what sex is like without the buffer of intimacy in a relationship and what that world is and how pornography is actually a very accurate representation of it rather than like kind of some of the slate writers who are like it's like science fiction or like the kind of alt edgy girls who are like it's empowering it's like no it's fucking Hobbesian it's dispiriting right but that's always what it's been that's always will continue to be and women are complicit in and some women like it and whatever and that's fine but like sex is in general not an uplifting experience and it's scary right and that's because we get pregnant because we get abortions, because we get raped, all of this stuff, right? Um, and like porn either amplifies those things or doesn't. But I felt complete confidence in saying that because I've been in that market. I've been in that, that's been my lived experience for years and nobody can take that away from me. It's the same, it's the confidence that comes from watching a, a movie and being like, I know exactly what I felt about this. Like, I don't need to bring in any other text or any other experience. I sat through Spring Breakers and I know exactly what it made me feel and I know exactly what that, you know, and there's no other thing because I had this experience with it. And I just bet that same level of like confidence to, and like authority to this piece. And of course, I think that I had to show my bona fides and be like, this is, I know it. Do you ever experience doubt? Oh God, all the time. Writing is all the, that's why writing is so terrible. That's where all the doubt is. That's where all the rewrites are. That's where, but that's also where I learned that like, unfortunately, I'm a better writer on the eighth draft. I always wanted to be a one draft writer. Like I'll just go sentence by sentence. It'll be fucking great. But it, it takes me eight drafts. And so, you know, it's like, that's where all the doubt and hesitation comes out. But I know the thing I turn in is the thing I'm the most confident about. And then once it's been minted and the invoices come in, then I stand behind all my work. Do you do you ever want to... That's why blogging is so terrible. That's why I don't like it. Because it's a first draft art form. It's, it's all first draft. It's all sloppy. It's all immediate. It's all like I haven't really had the time to like... I mean, other people are great at it. I think that like Corey and Alex are like geniuses at it. And there's definitely people who just have that art. I don't have that set of muscles and I don't... I'm not interested in developing it. When you look back like... Are you trying to build a body of work? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if I'll ever have like a singular piece. Like, I mean, like there's crack hour, right? I, I think into thin air is a masterpiece. I've probably read it four times. Like yeah. I just, I just come back to that book. Cause it's like, Oh, it's so yeah. raw and it's so intense. And it's just like, and you know, he has that masterpiece, but he also has a very great body of work. And to a degree, if it weren't for, um, God is not great. Hitchens would also just, I mean, that's the critique on him, right? It's like, yeah. He's not really a stylist. He just has like a, he's prolific and has this really great body of work. Um, so I am, uh, I don't, you know, if, if a publisher wants to pay me $200,000 to write a book, I'm not going to turn them down. But I would just like to live a um, middle, middle class lifestyle mm -hmm. and make 60 grand a year and mm -hmm. live in the San Fernando Valley. When I look at a piece like um, the bath, that bath salt mm -hmm. piece you did, I, I'm sort of struck by, I don't know if bath salts will exist in five or mm -hmm. 10 years. I pr hope not kind oh of, but, uh, it's kind of a placeholder though. Like I feel like if, even if bath salts, that specific yeah. synthesis synthesis won't like that synthesis of drug won't exist. Yeah. Something else will pop up. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I wonder because I read, you know, I read a lot of archival stuff. Yeah. So I like, you know, I read weird, like, crawdaddy stories from the seventies. Yeah. Um, that guy just died, sadly. Actually. But, um, you know, that, that really feel like, wow, 
whether this piece is great or okay or whatever, I'm like, it's good that someone was writing about this at the time right. because actually it's some of this stuff has been swallowed by history. I'm right. like, thinking actually of this piece. I, th- I think it was actually in Rolling Stone now that I'm thinking about, about this cult in Boston, mm. the Lyman family. Mm. Highly recommend it if you have yes. But I was thinking like this literally, like if this piece hadn't existed. Right. This this is a an unnotable cult that would have just sunken under the water, yeah. and I think that's sort of about like, you know that that bath salts reporting, that's something that actually could just come and go, right. and and not be worked on. Well, that's also the thing with the pornography thing, which yeah. is like this may all change, but I fucking nailed it right now. Yeah. So when you're when you're working on like working on like that bath salts piece. How do you how do you think when you think about something that's timely in that way and is like rapidly evolving and is poorly understood even by the people who sell it? Right. How do you how do you freeze time around around a story like that? How do you go about that? I mean, it definitely helps when I look around and I say no one else is writing this. Yeah. And so I get to make up the game as I go, right? And be like, yeah. here's the narrative on it. And yeah. I'm and there is you know, like to put it in terms of Everest, right? Where it's like, why did you climb the mountain? Because it's there, right? It's like, yeah. well, no one's written it, so I'm going to write it and it's going to be definitive. It's it's twofold. In, in purely um, narcissistic terms, it fulfills my needs on a, because I feel like ultimately all politics and all desires and everything just comes down to like your own ego, psychological needs, right? Yeah. That's, that's what Occupy is about. Um, so uh, I'm not. I'm not taking. The don't touch on it. That don't one. touch it. Um, or yeah, no. I mean, there's a lot of good in it and a lot of uh, neurosis. Um, I didn't mean I disagreed with you. I meant. Yeah, I know. I meant I have nothing well, to say about Well, one time we'll Occupy. talk about <laughs> the Internet Feminist Collective. Um, so it fulfills that need. Also, um, I'm a bit of a sucker, and when I meet these people, yeah. in I'm not a sap. But um, I am primarily a union organizer at heart, which I believe that like people are moved on the basis of human narrative and human stories. And so when I meet certain people, it really lights a fire under me of like, I want to get the story out. I want people to know about the two junkies in the hotel room, one who is 20 and has hepatitis and that they're doing this. I want to talk about the chemists in the... um, in the DEA lab. I want to talk about the 10 year old boy. I want to talk about. And so it's like that if it was just all my own ego and my own glory, I wouldn't be able, it wouldn't, that wouldn't be enough because I'm not, um, I don't have that much of a personality disorder. Yeah. But coupled with the relationships that are built and the desire to be like, all people need to know about these foster kids and not in doing good, but just because it's compelling. I also have supreme confidence in my taste, which I'm like, these are good stories. These are interesting. This isn't like some quirky little thing like bird watching that everyone's going to be enamored with. And it's like, you know, I mean, Franzen can write that because he's a great writer. But it's like, I don't necessarily think that I'm a really great writer. I think that I have really great ideas and I do storytelling good. I don't know how I feel about my prose. I think my prose is going to probably look radically different 10 years from now if I'm still doing this. Is is that that taste, that sort of underlying taste, something you've developed over time or did, did we motherfucker born? you can't develop taste um uh it's gotten better and it's gotten more honed and like I definitely now know how to play the magazine game a little bit of like you know as obnoxious as it is for for editors to say like well this story about this child killer 
is not about three things at once. I know that magazines want the three things at once thing. Or like one major magazine is like, we're not so much into complexity as we are about insanity and absurdity, right? And it's like, okay. So it's like, you know, eventually over pitching people, you find out what their fucking trip is, right? Right. And you find the stories that cater to them. But um, I think, I guess I think of it in terms of taste, like Ira Glass said something that's like quoted on like 9,000 tumblers. Yeah. Which is like... um, when you're starting out, if you have good taste, the work that you're creating right. is not going to live up to your taste. Right. Right. There's like a disconnect. I, I actually tend to agree with you that um, taste is sort of inborn, right. but skill is not inborn. No. And if you have good enough taste, you're probably not capable of making something you think is good. Absolutely. I mean, like the other thing is like this is also part of the thing with reading my contemporaries is that it would cripple me with envy if I was looking up to my contemporaries. Right. And I would just be like, oh, why not me? Whereas like if I read canon, because like the other issue is like I was a fuck up in high school and didn't really pay attention. I don't think I I still haven't read The Great Gatsby. Um, Don't worry. It's coming out as a movie. But I did do a profile on Tobey Maguire and Gatsby. (laughs) Um, So it's like and then in college I was doing history and it was a horrible history department and a lot of really dry policy wonk stuff. So like I am just reading the canon now and so like to me it's like you know I am still pouring over Norman Mailer's treatment of Muhammad Ali of Gay Talese on Frank Sinatra of this amazing piece that ran in life about it's it's what Panic in Needle Park is based on Hmm. you know and like just like great these and so it's like it it mystifies where that talent comes from where it's like oh it's from the ancients you know whereas like if somebody who's in my peer group can blow me away. Oh God, I don't know what I would do. You know, I would just be like, oh, like, why can't I have this? And I'm also afraid of stealing from them, you know. It's not um, really stealing. No, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, uh, I want to keep my, something kind of singular about it. When you said, if you're still doing this in 10 years, yeah. wh- where are you going? I mean, what, what what's, <sighs> what do you want to do? I, I told you I want I want sixty five thousand dollars a year and <laughs> you just went from forty to sixty five. Forty is what I'm going for now. So oh, we're talking for ten, ten years. Ten years. Five years. Yeah, you know, man. I just wanna. I want to. I grew up um, middle class, and I just I want to continue that legacy. Yeah, you know, it doesn't like, exist anymore. No, right. So it's like I just I that's I I'm um. You know, and I want to maintain a readership, and I don't want like I don't know anything about Chris Heath, right? I don't really know anything about John Krakauer. I just know their work. Yeah, the work just really speaks for the, the itself. So I'd like that. I'd like that legacy. Are you? Um, is Los Angeles your home? And do you oh see, yeah. Your, do you look for stories here? Is yes. Like- I mean, I may have to move to Riverside because that's where all the I'm getting all my great stories from. But this is this is um uh ideologically and politically and like spiritually uh what makes the most sense to me like i it is i think the problems of los angeles and the the contours of the city are it is a 20th century and 21st century maybe maybe las vegas is the 21st century city but it's like to me like new york had the 19th century and los angeles is the 20th century really absolutely i mean it's like new york is an is an outdated model of living, you know? Sort of a European model. Yeah, it's just like it's 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 your public transit and it's your it's it's vertical and it's all that stuff. And that's all fine and good, but it's like we are 
you know, Los Angeles is the ethereal now. It's boisterous. It's heterogeneous. You know, I live in, I, I, I don't strive for uh, cute bistros and bookstores. I like my malls and my, you know, it's like it's crass consumerism. But it's also like blended with like incredible architecture. And like we are, I think we're more, I think at this point, I mean, we go back and forth with Manhattan, but we are the most diverse. I mean, I don't even know if, I don't even know if it's Manhattan anymore. I think it's Queens. Right. Yeah. Where it's like, it's incredibly diverse you know, uh, not that I care because I don't talk to anybody else. Um, but <laughs> it's just, it's my scene, you know, yeah. it's like, I'm, I, I live that ethos of, I, it, it just makes sense to me. Like when I was in New York, I felt completely out of place. Would you, we were talking before we, we started taping that you, you felt like you were pretty like isolated from any sort of like a writing scene here in LA. And you didn't oh, feel... I have no writing scene here. So do you, do you have peers at all? Or are you just kind of on no, I think everybody I, I, I pitch to, with the exception of Amy Wallace, who's wonderful, um, lives in New York. You're just another anonymous Los yeah. Angeles person. Which is great. I live for the anonymity. I, if I can make, that's, I think that's another thing that came from being a union organizer and also from um, reporting, which is like I'm constantly shoving my nose and I'm getting people to talk to me when they don't want to talk. Yeah. I'm prying out intimate details in short periods of time. And it's somewhat exhausting. So, like, if I can make it through a whole day without talking to somebody else, I'm fucking great. <laughs> Thank you, Natasha Argus. Thanks, Aaron Lamer. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thank you very much to Natasha for sitting on the floor for upwards of two hours while we tape this. Thanks to our editor, Superior, Lauren Kirchner. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max and Evan. Uh, always a big thanks to our sponsor, Tiny Letter, from the good people at MailChimp. We will be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.